Coming up on Harvard Chan This Week in Health, how pollution is making people in Detroit sick. You tilt your head up a little bit and it's just smokestacks pretty much around every corner. We take a closer look at life in one heavily polluted neighborhood. Plus, a new study reveals the most shopped for medical procedures and the research showing just how many people in the world are now obese. Hello and welcome to Harvard Chan This Week in Health. I'm Noah Levitt. And I'm Amy Monomiro. Noah, we begin this week by looking at the staggering health effects of air pollution. A recent cover story in Newsweek examined the situation in and around Detroit, specifically focusing on the small town of River Rouge. There are 52 sites of heavy industry within a three-mile radius of the small town. Zoe Schlanger, a senior writer at Newsweek, recently spent nine days in River Rouge. It looks a lot like suburban anywhere USA. I grew up in suburban kind of post-industrial Connecticut, and it looks a lot like that. Um, cute, you know, smallish, medium-sized houses, uh, sidewalks, trees. And then you kind of look up from the sidewalks, um, or if you're looking down the street, you tilt your head up a little bit, and it's just smokestacks pretty much around every corner, um, which is quite surreal. The air in everywhere in River Rouge and in most of the surrounding towns as well uh, smells like eggs all the time. That's from the sulfur dioxide, I'm told. Um, it's kind of, there's a gritty sort of haze in the air on some days. Some days are worse than others. Uh, people in town tell me that the sky turns orange a couple times a month from uh, the two steelworks, uh, steel mills down the road. The power plants and steel mills in River Rouge and Detroit spew a litany of chemicals into the air. Sulfur dioxide, nitrogen dioxide, and carbon dioxide, plus benzene, toluene, cadmium, and mercury. And as you can imagine, the health consequences of this are significant. Not just in River Rouge, but in Detroit as a whole, where 15% of adults have asthma. Schlanger told us that there's a sense among residents that having asthma is, quote, normal, and for people that do have it, accessing care is really difficult. There's only one um, asthma specialist within like a 30-minute drive of that area, and Detroit's notorious for having pretty terrible public transportation. So if you don't have a car, it's pretty hard to get help, and especially if you're having asthma attacks regularly and need to be in emergency rooms regularly, that's a huge burden um, for someone who maybe can't miss a day of work or has kids and needs childcare for their kids to be able to like take a day and get to the doctor. So there's a lot of that, and what's interesting is that's sparked something of a bootleg market for inhalers, um, I've been told. A lot of people buy from their neighbors or use their kids' prescription, and then you have a lot of people um, who don't have enough of their prescription left for themselves or parents foregoing the, treating their own asthma so that their kids have enough of an inhaler um, to get them through the week, that kind of a thing. And in describing the situation in River Rouge in Detroit, Schlanger uses the term environmental racism. Citing research from the University of Michigan showing that 82% of black students in Detroit live in the city's most polluted neighborhoods, compared to 44% of white students. And Schlanger reports that students in those pollution-exposed schools actually score lower on standardized tests. That aligns with extensive research that has shown how pollution can cause cognitive delays in children. A key factor in all of this is poverty. Detroit as a whole, the demographics, it's a majority black city. It's, I think, about 83 or 82 percent black. And um, most of the city, or a lot of the city, uh, is below the poverty line, but um, the income level for black families is much lower. Um, it's something like a 6000 or $10,000 difference. I think it's about $24,000 a year for a black household in Detroit. And when you look at what rent prices are like near 
sources of industrial pollution, they're going to be lower. Um, and so this is kind of when you have this legacy pollution, this is where these neighborhoods have been historically built up. Um, in part because it's cheaper. And then the people there feel that if this was happening in the nearby, more wealthy, whiter suburbs like Gross Point, um, that there would have been some action taken. Uh, and this is mostly me relaying how they feel. Also on a national level, the EPA denies something like 95% of all petitions from communities of color against polluters in their neighborhoods. Um, so those numbers are quite staggering. And hearing about the situation in River Rouge in Detroit, it's easy to draw parallels to Flint and that city's lead-contaminated water. And there are some similarities, especially when it comes to failures involving government oversight and regulation. But there are some key differences, mainly that this type of pollution has been a problem around Detroit for decades. In terms of remediation, we could argue it's a much more insidious problem than the water in Flint um, because there's so many different sources of air pollution and no clear-cut federal or state regulations that would even really address the issue. Um, most of these plants are not out of compliance. Um, it's kind of the whole area is out of compliance for sulfur dioxide. But for the most part, people are following the rules. It's more an issue that are the air pollution regulations in the country are not equipped to handle this many sources all clustered in one spot. In the wake of the Flint water crisis, we talked on this podcast about the fact that lead pipes are also a problem across the U.S., not just limited to Flint. And Amy, when it comes to pollution, Schlanger says that many American cities and towns face similar problems as Detroit. It was a happenstance more than anything that I happened to end up in River Rouge and notice the smell and pursue this particular story. But um, we can look at cases of this all across the country um, in industrial towns and cities and also in um, ag agricultural areas uh, where there's heavy use of pesticides. There's all kinds of water contamination, air contamination problems in those areas as well. So it's definitely not isolated to this. And I think it also flies under the radar a lot of the time in part because you can't point to any major violation of any law when you have a case like this necessarily because um, all the sources could be complying, but the combined effect is quite huge. Again, that was Zoe Schlanger of Newsweek discussing her recent piece on pollution and environmental racism in and around Detroit. If you want to read her story, we've put a link on our website. Just go to hsph.me slash thisweekinhealth. So, what if we could remove coal-fired power plants like the ones surrounding River Rouge? What would the effects be? Well, we spoke about that with Jonathan Bunicor a research fellow in the Center for Health and the Global Environment at Harvard. He studies how switching to renewable energy sources, things like wind or solar, affects our health and climate change. A lot of what it's doing is sort of displacing these fossil fuel energy sources, therefore displacing the impacts of these fossil fuel sources. So it means less climate change and less air pollution, which means lower risk of heart attack, lung cancer, respiratory disease, and dying. So obviously the effects of switching to renewable energy can be great and significant, as Jonathan explained, but it can also be complicated and it's often tied up in politics. Last summer, the Obama administration and the EPA unveiled the Clean Power Plan, which would set a national limit on carbon pollution produced by power plants. A recent study from Bunicor estimated that strong carbon standards could prevent up to 3,500 premature deaths in the U.S. each year. But the Clean Power Plan is stuck in legal limbo right now. Challengers have said the EPA overstepped its legal authority when it issued the plan. And in February, the Supreme Court ordered the EPA to halt enforcement of the plan 
until a lower court issues its ruling in a lawsuit against the EPA. Because climate change is so politically charged, Bunicor says that it's important to shift the narrative to focus on the health benefits of different climate change initiatives, especially at the city or state level. A lot of these things that you do to mitigate climate change are also going to be good for health, maybe because it improves air quality, or maybe if it's a transportation intervention, it gets people walking more, stuff like that. So even if you don't believe in climate change for all these different reasons, and you do these things, it's still good for your health because it reduces your risk of asthma, of heart disease. If it's a transportation intervention, it reduces risk of obesity and diabetes, and it's good for your health. Bunicor also added that coal-fired power plants are responsible for about 40% of electricity production in the U.S., and that number has been falling in recent years, driven by increased usage of natural gas. The world now has more people who are overweight than underweight. That's according to a new global analysis of trends in body mass index, or BMI. Researchers from the World Health Organization Harvard Chan School, Imperial College of London, and other institutions found that the number of people with a BMI greater than 30 jumped from 105 million in 1975 to more than 640 million in 2014. And those rising rates of obesity are contributing to a spike in diabetes. Those same researchers estimate that 422 million adults have diabetes. That's up from 108 million in 1980. And the global cost of the disease is now $825 billion a year. The study did not differentiate between type 1 and type 2 diabetes, but an estimated 85 to 90 percent of all diabetes cases are type 2. The Obama administration wants to use leftover money from the fight against Ebola to combat Zika virus. If Congress approves the transfer, about $600 million will be directed to the Centers for Disease Control to research development of a vaccine, treat those infected with the virus, and to support mosquito control efforts. President Obama has asked Congress for nearly $2 billion in emergency funding to fight Zika, but that request has not yet been fulfilled. Coming up in next week's episode, we'll be taking a closer look at efforts to combat the mosquitoes that transmit the Zika virus. Finally, this episode, colonoscopies, mammograms, and childbirth are the most shopped-for health services. That's according to a new study from the Harvard Chan School. Researchers looked at how patients in one insurance plan used a price transparency tool offered by the insurance company Aetna. The tool shows patients what they would need to pay out-of-pocket for certain services, and they found some similarities among the comparison shoppers. Most were millennials, younger than 35 years old, in good health and had higher deductibles, meaning they spent more of their own money on their health care. So why were things like colonoscopies and mammograms so popular? Well, researchers say those are procedures that people can easily plan for ahead of time. Other examples include MRIs or knee replacements. And while those services were popular to shop for, just over 3% of people in the insurance plant actually used the tool. We spoke about this with Anna Seneco, a research scientist in the Department of Health Policy and Management at the Harvard Chan School, and one of the study's authors. She says that three-quarters of private health care plans offer similar price tools, but many consumers still don't know that they exist. If we want patients to be engaged in their health and health care and engaged in decision-making about their health and health care, then good information like that provided on price tools and through quality report cards are important first step to to having patients be able to make those types of decisions. The challenge remaining is how to engage and educate more individuals 
with healthcare price information because we know from other surveys that patients really care about cost, healthcare cost information, and want more of it, but that they often don't know where to find it. Seneca says the next step may be using data from price tools to inform healthcare providers so that they can then share that information with patients as they make healthcare decisions. And again, these are pretty common. Seneca says about 75% of private healthcare plans have these, so the exceptions would be something like Medicare or Medicaid, but if you have insurance through your employer, you might have access to one of these tools. That's all for Harvard Chan This Week in Health. I'm Amy Montemiro. And I'm Noah Levitt. Listen to this podcast anytime by visiting our SoundCloud page, soundcloud.com slash harvardpublichealth, or visit hsph.me slash thisweekinhealth to learn how you can subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher. And if you like what you hear, we'd love you to leave a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or even just comment on our SoundCloud page.